We have an all questions episode ready for you, including is there a best time of the year to buy a car? Why aren't there more EV charging stations around the country? And is $8,000 off a new Chevrolet Blazer a good deal? Next on Talking Cars. Hi, and welcome back. I'm Mike Quincy. I'm Jennifer Stockberger. And I'm Keith Barry. So every once in a while, we get really lucky with our assignments for Talking Cars. We get to do an all questions episode, which is what we got going on right now. We get a ton of questions from you guys, video questions, uh, text questions. Keep them coming at TalkingCars at iCloud.com. So to keep on schedule, let's just jump right into it. The first question is from Amy, who writes, when is the best time of the year to try and buy a vehicle? Some dealers now claim not to haggle over prices and only offer one price and others still haggle. Not sure if the timing still matters for buying. Thanks. Love the show. So, Keith, what is your advice? Yeah, so uh, I, 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 let's take on haggling first. So a dealership that says no haggle just means that you're going to be paying what you could have haggled off. I mean, I can say, uh, <laughs> I mean, you can say any price is a no haggle price. It just means you might not necessarily get the best price. So what we always do here when we buy a lot of cars is we just email and ask for the best price from a couple of dealers before we go out. You may find that that no haggle dealership has priced itself well, um, but look out for fees, for, for you know, add-ons that only show up at the, at the end of when there. you're there. Right. And, and yeah. historically, Saturn actually tried the no-haggle right. approach to, yeah. Their, yeah. to their car buying. I mean, you give General Motors a little bit of credit that you know they mm. saw the, the weak spot in automotive retail. But we're so conditioned to haggling right. when we go to the dealer. And we often found when we're, super when we're buying cars for, yeah. for the test program that actually some Saturn dealers would actually right. haggle. Mm. Uh, I've, I've seen some research that's suggesting that um, buying uh, a car, uh, except uh, on uh, early in the week is better except holiday weekends tend to be um, uh, have a lot of incentives and, oh. and that, that gets people going probably not so busy I'm oh. happy to have people and I think the haggle price can change mm -hmm. you know it may it may be a no haggle price or not but that haggle price also changed maybe a time of year element yeah well the time of year is is interesting because uh, one of the things people complain about most about buying a car is how long it takes so <laughs> you're going to want to get as much of that done before you go in uh, and also as far as the time of year is concerned that that's a little antiquated at the end of the right. month the way that some automakers used to try and drive sales would say if you sell say 50 cars by the end of the month you get a bonus of uh, a large amount of money. If you right. sell 49, you get zero. Right. And a lot, it was called stair-stepping. Yeah, you said that term. I didn't right. know. I, yeah. I had never if heard that. If you meet the stair-step, then you get extra cash. Right. I, it, it's kind of... It's more it, like a ramp now. Yeah, it's, it's sort of <laughs> fallen out of favor, so it's not happening as much. So email around, find the price you want, and then go to the dealer that treats you well, and don't be afraid to leave. Right. That's we, my we, advice. We buy a lot of cars yeah. here at Consumer Reports. Uh, we've, we've seen it and heard it all. So yeah. thanks, Keith. Uh, next question is from John. Love the podcast. Thanks, I, John. <laughs> I, watch it, I watch it the second it shows up on my Apple TV. I would have thought by now the big oil companies or somebody would have started building charging centers for electric car owners. Of course, they could also have gas pumps. Electric vehicles aren't a large percentage of the motoring public, but with gas pumps, anyone taking a long, long trip Sorry, anyone taking a long trip would stop as well. Mm. Thoughts. So, um, <laughs> neat idea. 
um, having the kind of the infrastructure of the gas pumps already in place, and you know they're often uh, quickie marts, and so you're running in for a cup of coffee anyway. Uh, however, you know, reading, rereading this question, it's like um, the oil companies actually probably want you to buy more oil and maybe <laughs> not switch over um, to to electric cars. So historically speaking, um, back when internal combustion engines started, you know, coming online, uh, you know, there there wasn't a road infrastructure, there weren't gas stations. Right. So are you are you building the vehicles first? Are you building the charging stations chicken, first? Chicken and the egg. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's kind of the same scenario with this. I mean, what do you guys think? So where I'm seeing it is I think it's harder to add than to build new. So mm. we, you know, we have a, a lo big local supermarket that just went up. It has charging stations. We have, I think I've said before, this, this place in rural Vermont, there's a little <laughs> coffee shop that just went up. It has three charging stations. So I think as new things get built, you will see the infrastructure start to expand, added new. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly it exists in destinations, on main thoroughfares, et cetera. But yeah. Right. Yeah, what John was saying about, you know, how come we just don't have it near where there is, uh, where there are other attractions? Well, that is sort of what we're where seeing. It is, yeah. And, and it, a gas station, the convenience store format doesn't work if you have to wait a few minutes. But we're starting to also see it at dealerships as well. Right. Uh, so you can go to the dealer where you bought, bought your car in charge. And we're starting to see some of these super fast chargers coming online. And they tend to be at places where you can go right. and have a, you know, have a snack, do a little shopping, take a, a bathroom break on a road trip. So yeah, it, it is happening, but you answered your own question there when you said it's not a large perc percentage right. of the motoring public. Right. The, the, market, the market is saying we're yeah. not buying a lot of electric vehicles right now. Yeah. So, uh, but they're coming. I mean, we, we literally have doubled our charging capacity yeah. here at the track in the last year because we've had to. Yep. So, yeah. It's certainly part of the future. Yep. Uh, next question is from Scott. Hello, I'm a hobby marathon runner, but also enjoy a fun, fun to drive manual transmission car. The problem I find, though, is that I get some sore. I get sore muscles from running, but my manual transmission Volkswagen Golf TDI just exacerbates the pain. Could you recommend something fun, fuel efficient, even electric, that is ultimately comfortable for athletes with sore hips and backs? So, Jen, what do you have for Scott? So, first of all, we were wondering if this is Jake Fisher who right. wrote this. <laughs> or Mike Monticello. Marathon yeah. runner. Uh, any of the other talking cars right? people. <laughs> we're like, wait a minute. Is this an alias, Scott? But no. So, so first... Um, seat is very personal and seat comfort is very personal. Mm -hmm. We absolutely go through this when we're rating cars ourselves. And it will depend, Scott, certainly on your stature. So the first thing I would say is it may not be a car, but features of the seat to look for. Mm. Um, make sure you sit in it for a while, but power seats, that ability to tweak it rather than in steps like a, a mechanical adjustment, a power seat that not only you can tailor more finely, but even if you're getting fatigued or a muscle starts to ache during a trip, you can just adjust yeah. a little bit yeah. to get you know a pressure point, things away. Um, cushion length makes a big difference between cutting off you know, circulation to a lower leg, uh, bolster width, all of that. So those I would certainly the say. The pitch of the seat too. Yeah, I find pitch. so many seats, they like yeah. dump you back yep. nowadays. Lumbar, yeah. you know, I'm not sure if sore muscles are in his <clears> back, but that makes a difference. So to specifically answer the question, I came up with a Civic Si. Uh -huh. So fun car, reliable, yeah. manual, um, a little bit sporty. We actually, in our ratings, preferred the seat in the Si 
over the regular civics. Which is usually not the case. It's with usually the not the case. Car with versus sporty a mainstream car. It's a little so, more yeah. bolstered. Right. And, yeah. yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. So, uh, Keith, do you have a recommendation? Oh, I, I, I'd go with what Jen says. Yeah. I, I'm going to cross out my all my recommendations <laughs> and just go with whatever Jen says. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, right. that's, but drive the car first. Uh-huh. Right? Take it out and see if you like it. Because we have people, when we do our tests, all shapes, sizes, yep. and people, like we said, a lot of people just like, you know, just like Scott. And one person will love it, one person will hate it. Right. So, yeah, yeah. I, I very, came, very um, personal, so sit in it. <laughs> I, I just jump in real quick. I came up with the Toyota Corolla hatchback. Oh, yeah. Mm. Manual transmission, yeah. probably fold the seat down, put a bike in back right. if you're yeah. you know, getting into traffic and stuff like that. Uh, I think this car is a lot of fun to drive, kind of overlooked uh, by, by a lot of folks because they think, oh, it's just a Corolla. It no, actually no, has, it has really good bones to it. Yep. Yeah. Okay, so so th- that's the great questions, great answers. Uh, next question is, in fact, is from Chris. The other day, the automatic mercy brake, I'm sorry, the other day, the automatic mercy braking kicked in for the first time. There was no real risk for me hitting the car in front of me, but I felt I might get rear-ended by the car behind me. The reaction was to disable the feature when I got to my destination. Has anyone done a study of how many people actually utilize the advanced safety features on their cars? Are we all paying for these features only to turn them off? Great question. And uh, gee, let's go to Keith for this yeah. one. <laughs> um, so, so, Chris, turn it back on. Uh, I'm just going to turn it back on. Uh, but as far as your question about a study is concerned, yeah, the answer is, is yes, we, we sort of have. Yeah. And not to give it away, but Jen, can you talk a little about Yeah, not uh, only us, but the IHS yeah. as well have done studies on... So as this technology develops these safety features, they're going to need some tuning. You know, both ourselves and the IHS in their study had said, if they are, in the appearance of the driver, overly aggressive, there is a tendency for people to shut them off. Um, so, you know, Honda, for example, that was well documented. People felt their AEB was a little overzealous in coming on too frequently, and they were shutting it off. Um, what I would say is it's getting better. I do see them tuned better. Um, Yes, Chris, turn it back on. Because the scenario that he describes, you know, somebody, you know, getting in front of him, it going off. um, Imagine if he had just looked away for a Mm -hmm. second. You're tuning the radio. You glanced in your rearview mirror and that had happened without your AEB. The potential for it to be a benefit is so much more than that instantaneous of, oh, shoot, yeah, it went off for a second. You're the one who's right. rear-ending someone, and it's on your insurance. Right. Right. No one wants to get hit, but uh, but that is this. it is a, a, a great feature. It's also important to differentiate between, say, the convenience features, like maybe some of the lane keep assist versus right. the AEB. And we have surveys from our readers who, who, t- who from our, our members, who tell us that they that these systems have, have helped them yeah, a great deal. Yeah, save my bacon. And you bring up a good point. Following crashes when you rear end someone, it's on you. Right, mm-hmm. right. And, that and is a the, the technology even is paying attention no when, yep. when, yeah. when you're not. But we, we kind of get it because it, some things aren't true. So some of the lane keeping assist features uh, right. I immediately turn yeah. off because they they're just almost not quite diabolical, but they almost have a right. mind of their own. Excellent question. So we're going to keep on keeping on. Uh, next question is from Lance. He writes, hi, guys, love your podcast, so much so that I recently became a CR member. Hey. I already used the website to pick out a new riding lawnmower. Hey, it has four wheels and an engine, and, you know, pretty soon we're going to be doing talking lawnmowers. <laughs> and cup holders. And cu- yeah. They have cup right. holders now. It's incredible. When do you get the best bang for your buck on trading in a car? The company I work for buys cars new and keeps them for 80,000 miles, around three years. 
Would it be smarter to keep the cars a bit longer or trade them in sooner? So, mm. excellent question again. Uh, Keith, we're going to throw this one to you right away. What's, that, what's the best advice? Sure. So, it's, it's different if it's business versus a consumer. I'm sure that there are some tax incentives here. They're able to depreciate them. Uh, also, you don't want to attract employees with a car that's fully paid off with a, you know, a, a car with 300,000 miles on it that's 15 years old. Uh, there is a, a goal there to, to have a good working environment for you. If your car is your working environment, that's that's one of the not one of the perks of the job. It's just part of the part of the job. Yep. Um, but as far as a consumer is concerned, it really depends on the car. There's some cars that. Um, you know, as soon as they hit 100,000, their, their value kind of drops a bit. But other cars that have a perception of reliability, mm -hmm. especially, are the ones that are going to hold their value longer and longer. Luxury cars, they, you know, have a precipitous drop, right. and then they kind of hold for a while and maybe gently fall some more. So it really depends but, on But, but on you know, to bring this back to, to the scenario that the question was about, it, it sounds hmm. like, you know, the company is providing vehicles. We don't know what this person does, whether they're, you know, delivering parts or they're, you know, they're, they're traveling uh, as Sales a salesperson or, or, yeah. or whatnot. But I mean, generally speaking, the longer you keep a car and, and maintain it, right. you, you spread out the cost of that vehicle over time, correct? I correct. mean, yeah, it just amortizes over longer. Hmm. My thought was that 80,000 miles in three years, they're putting a lot, they're spending a lot of time hmm. in these cars. Right. So, and which means they're spending a lot of time on the road. Their potential for something adverse to happen is a lot higher just because their vehicle miles traveled. So the newer car, Better features, better safety is probably the way to go, in right. my mind. Right. That, that was the only keep thing them I, new. I was yeah. thinking about. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you keep your car a long time, as they say, you know, you drive them into the ground, it, it's, it's a cheap way to drive. But, but if you have a 10-year-old car, you have 10-year-old technology. Correct. So, good, excellent Correct. point. Yep. So, the next question is, according to some sources, many late 2000s and early 2010 Toyotas use excessive amounts of oil. I have this issue with my 07 Scion TC, which doesn't bother me much because I've not, had, uh, I've not had other unexpected problems with it. Is this oil consumption issue significant enough to not purchase used Toyotas from this period, 20, 20, 2007 to 2012? So, hmm. Jen, what, uh, what do you have for this, for this question? Right, so certainly this issue cropped up in some Toyotas. Um, Toyotas are so reliable in other ways that we only saw just a small glitch, if mm. you will, if that's the right word, in our reliability. Mm -hmm. So it existed, particularly in that 2007 model year, other years after that. Um, you know, we've covered the issue. Oddly, it's not just a Toyota issue. We actually called out Subarus and Audis mm -hmm. in our coverage mm -hmm. of, fuel, of oil consumption. And this idea that consuming oil at a rate of, you know, you need to put a quart in every 1,200 miles is not really acceptable performance. Right. No car should be doing that. Maybe 20 years ago. Right. Yeah. So the good thing is if you're keeping up with it, you're probably not doing any harm. You know, the, the engine's going to keep going, to his point. You know, he's, it's not a big deal to him. Um, but, yeah, the other thing is that reputationally, this issue has stuck with them. You know, it's the one bad apple that tarnishes, you know, you talk about Toyotas and oil consumption, Subarus and head gasket, yeah, yeah, these one say. things that stick with these reputationally. I don't think it's a reason to avoid 
Toyotas from that period. Right. But be aware that it does exist. And if you're buying yep. a used one, check the service records and right. see how often the oil gets changed. Check the, you know, right. uh, have, bring it to a mechanic if you're not handy and check it out. Right. But have right. previous owners kept up with that. I'm sorry, yeah. I didn't mean to keep, keep no, no. jumping in. I, 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 but I think I really latched on to what you said about these 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 reputations. Yeah. You know, they say, oh, we've heard blah, 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 blah. And But then you have an organization like Consumer Reports yeah. that has the data and you look at, you know, the reliability histories of the cars and you see all the, the bright greens, which is a good a good right. symbol. Right. Correct. So moving Correct. on, we have the next question is from Chris. Hi, Talking Cars. I'm a big fan of your show and a longtime subscriber. Are OEM tires in, inferior to their twins sold at tire shops? Why do OEM tires seem to wear out much faster than tire shop tires? Thanks. So, OEM original equipment I was just going to say, yeah. Jen, you are one of our resident <laughs> tire experts here. You can not only explain OEM yeah. like Keith just did, right. but what kind of advice do you have for Chris? So, so I would say it's not necessarily inferiority as it is different priorities. So original equipment manufacturers are highly specifying low rolling resistance to gain fuel economy. I mean, it's just a given. So the other funny thing about tires is you can have the same tire brand, name, size, etc., with two different specifications. The OE specification that the original equipment manufacturer wants can be quite different from the aftermarket version. So much so that Gene and Ryan and Chris, who work on our tire program, when they're picking models for testing, are actively avoiding those that are original equipment specified right. tires. And we have a tire selector on ConsumerReports.org, yes. so yeah. check it out. And lots of aftermarket tire ratings. Again, I go back to those are aftermarket tire ratings. Excellent. Next question is from Eric. My friend's 2008 Nissan Altima 3.5 was totaled. The car had a bunch of miscellaneous issues, but no problems with the powertrain. How do you feel about the new 2018 or 2019 Altimas? And how do I convince her to get a used Accord or Camry <laughs> or a three, three to five-year-old Nissan? So, um, Keith? Um, Nissan over the past few years has done a little bit of cost cutting. Um, their cars, I, I don't think... Personally, at least, I don't think mm -hmm. it really seemed to, to have kept up with some of the competition from Toyota and Honda. Mm -hmm. Also, depreciation is a big factor. So I, I would actually say if you're driving that many miles in a car, get a 2017. My recommendation is just go out and get a 2017 Toyota Camry hybrid. Um, you have that sedan feel. Um, it's not that much different as far as handling is, is, is concerned. And if you're putting that many miles on, you're going to save a ton of money on fuel if you're already buying a car that's used and has already had that depreciation. And it does well in our reliability ratings. So uh, that's my recommendation is replace it, not, you know, replace it with with something that is a better car. That's, and that, that's a great point, because yeah. the, the, the question is, is Nissan Altima 3.5, that's 3.5 liter V6. Yeah. So you go from that to the Camry Almost hybrid. 40 miles a gallon. Uh, yeah. I mean, you'll see a, a world of difference. Yeah. Any any more advice? Yeah, so so certainly echoing what, what um, Keith said, that certainly the Altima had good reliability, but our owner satisfaction ratings for that car, people didn't love it. Now I will say, this is new Altimas. That 3.5 liter V6, in anything they put it in, was sweet. Yeah. It was a VQ, yes. right? Yeah, it was fast, it was responsive. So, to uh, me, it was fast, it was responsive. A little bit sporty, dare I say. Right. So going to a Camry, I was like, ah. So we've always said the Accord had a bit more sporty 
character mm -hmm. than the Camry, so my vote was actually for um, a used Accord. Um, 16 or later for safety, 30 miles per gallon, so I opted for the used Accord. See, I'm, I'm gonna take a slightly different approach. I'm actually gonna wave the flag for the new Altima. Hmm. Uh, I like the fact that it has a standard forward collision warning, automatic emergency braking. I thought the fuel economy in our tested model was was it was pretty impressive. Yeah. Um, it's quiet, it's comfortable. No, it's not a ball of fire to drive, but uh, I've taken it on a bunch of road trips and I actually find the, the new Altima to be pretty satisfying in, in a kind of, you know. Yep. A, a quieter way. I so think. you're the one who always has that car checked out. <laughs> yeah, what can I say? So, I, so we've helped Eric immensely. Right. Camry, <laughs> new, new Altima, and used a car. I pick so, which one of us you like best. <laughs> the, the, the bottom line is they're all actually really good choices. Yeah. Eric, let us know which one you pick so we know who wins. Yeah, exactly. It's the, the contest. <laughs> Next question is from Justin. Hey guys, new listener. With the increased stress of more turbocharged engines from the industry as a whole, do you think cars will end up off the roads earlier than their naturally aspirated pre predecessors? Or do you think the research and development is up to speed and these cars will be able to go the distance? I like the, a lot of wordplay in that question. Going, going the distance, up yeah, to speed. Yeah, yeah, yeah I like this. Yeah, you uh, should write our headlines for us. That's well, right. <laughs> uh, generally uh, speaking, Justin, uh, turbochargers, it's, it's a great idea. It's a smaller engine. You're still getting a decent amount of power. The mm -hmm. idea with a smaller engine, especially four-cylinder, is that you're going to get decent fuel economy. Mm -hmm. But it's not so easy to generalize about reliability for turbocharged engines. And when we talk about turbocharged engines, we also have to hook it up with the powertrain in general. So what that right. means is these engines are often hooked up to 8, 9, 10-speed automatics. So sometimes the weak spot of the powertrain can be the transmission hooked up to the turbocharged right, engine. Right. So uh, what we're finding in our research in our Consumer Reports Reliability uh, surveys is that the manufacturers that have a lot of experience doing turbocharged engines, we're talking about Audi, BMW, Porsche, they tend to have more reliable mm -hmm. powertrains. The manufacturers that don't quite that have you. as much uh, experience with these setups include Hyundai, Lincoln, and Mini Cooper. And, and they're, you know, we're, we're finding signs that, that the, our, our members are saying the, the, the engines are problematic, the engines need to be replaced. So that's kind of what our research is showing. I don't know what you guys want to well, jump the, in on. To your point, the turbos in this effort for fuel economy are being paired with transmission changes. So it's hard to tease out. Right. So it, would, it could give the appearance that the turbo, the addition of the turbo hurt the reliability, but you can't, you can't pull them apart. Right. Yeah. Is the best transmission example, or, yeah. I think, is the Ford Power Shift. Right. Uh, that awful, awful transmission. Uh, that found in like the Ford Focus. Right. Exactly. One, one example. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, real problems with that. Real exactly. problems with that. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Great question. All these questions have been awesome. Keep them coming. Talking cars at iCloud.com. We've got time for just a few more. Uh, the next one reads, I just watched a video on how Consumer Reports tests fuel economy. Do you account for the effects of temperature? Generally, cars get lower fuel economy in colder weather. Do you report the fuel economy as measured or do you have a formula for adjusting to a standardized temperature? Jen, take it away. The answer is yes. We do have a formula. We do temperature correct. And the other piece is that we do limit when it's severely cold or windy. We do avoid fuel economy tests in general. So, yes. Short, sweet, to the point. Yep. There we go. Nothing to that. Okay, moving on. Uh, last question, actually, we have is from Al, who writes... Mm -hmm. Hi everyone, love your show and watch every episode as soon as they come out. I was wondering about the Chevy Blazer. I'm seeing as much as $8,000 off sticker on the RS trim. 
At MSRP, as you've indicated, it's a poor value. But now, with so much off, does that change the equation? Great question. Keith, what can you tell Al? Yeah, the food is terrible in such small portions. It's, <laughs> it's just, it's not, uh, a bad car is a bad car at, at any price. Sometimes you'll get an incentive to move an outgoing model that was a good model to make way for an even better one. That's when it might be worth it to right. go for the incentive. Mm -hmm. But if it's a car that, that's, that's just not great, no amount of money on the hood is is going to make it a make you happier with it unless you're just buying solely on price. Right, yeah. and, and it, it's interesting because just a, a couple of minutes ago you brought up owner satisfaction. Right. Mm. So sometimes a car that has low owner satisfaction, I got a great deal, on it, but they take the, the consumer report survey and they're like, I really don't like this car. Right. <laughs> and I would add, there's a reason there's eight thousand dollars off the sticker. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> they don't Why put that, that on cars that, that are moving. You know. Well, that's about all the time we have for this week's episode. As always. If you want to learn more about the topics or the cars that we talked about, check out the show notes. Episodes like this are only possible when you send us your questions, your text questions, your video questions, talkingcars at iCloud.com. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll see you next week.